Thank you, Father Rick. Yeah, so first I'll just say, for those of you who brought family members or friends to come and hear Pastor Rick preach, you know, I sympathize <laughs> that, that I'm up here this morning. I did that once too, and, and my parents said, well, he didn't even preach today. So there it is. Um, like Pastor Rick said, I'm a member here with my wife, Hee Jung, and my son, Eugene, and I'm thankful to be meditating on these scriptures uh, with you. And I think we'll focus primarily on Matthew, but we'll, we'll look to the other uh, texts as well. So um, the adoration of the Magi is a really fascinating story to me. And it tells of three encounters with Jesus. You have the faithful encounter of the Magi, and you have the turning away of the religious authorities, and then you have the murderous rivalry of Herod. And I read Matthew as using these encounters to turn to his readers just one chapter into his book and say, you, what are you going to do in your encounter with Jesus? I told you who Jesus is, now what are you going to do about it? It's a, it's a very quick turn by Matthew. Um, the differences in these responses that we see in, this, in the story invite us to step into the story ourselves and to learn a little bit about who Jesus is and who we are. So with those questions in mind, um, I'd like to this morning kind of step into the story and use a little bit of a godly imagination um, to envision what were the motivations behind these characters. So I'm going to speculate a little bit, but I will try to tie it down to the text. And if you disagree, you can, can uh, give me a talking to afterwards. Uh, I'm open to that. But I'd like to look at this under three headings. Let's first focus on the fruitful dissatisfaction of the Magi, and then the dialogue of the Magi, and then the Magi's encounter with divinity. So we'll talk about dissatisfaction, dialogue, and encounter. So first, the fruitful dissatisfaction of the Magi. Let's just get a few points of orientation out of the way. You know, who were the wise men or the Magi, as I'll, I'll call them? Uh, these guys were part of the intellectual elite from the cities in the east. So if, if here's the Mediterranean, here's Palestine, way over east, over the Fertile Crescent, down um, around Babylon. Let's just say they're from Babylon for our purposes this morning. And you can read about people like this um, in the books of the, of the book of the prophet Daniel, who himself was called the Magi. So he's a wise man. Now these wise men, the, the Magi, studied wisdom and they also studied the stars, both the laws of the stars or astronomy and also the words of the stars, you know, astrology. And in that time, those were considered a unified science for many people. And they were likely rich and they probably traveled with a very big armed entourage. They were not held in high account by the Jews at all, given their alternative conception of truth that they offered. So I think it's important to remember that the Magi traveled a long way to reach Jerusalem. You're talking about an estimated 40 days to make it from Babylon all the way over to Jerusalem to, to inquire about this baby Jesus. Um, they make this trip due to this deep conviction they have that the king of the Jews has just been born, and they want to come and worship him. So in Jerusalem, they're connected with the scriptures, right? And then they were sent to Bethlehem. There they meet Jesus, and they're transformed. A lot of people read, they leave by another way to be the way of Jesus. But their lives were changed. And the rather basic question I'd like to meditate on in this first point is, why did the Magi travel from the east to Jerusalem to look for the newborn king of the Jews? Said differently, what motivated and enabled their radical openness to the astrological sign that they saw? 
Why did they draw near to Christ while Herod and the religious authorities stayed away? The answer to these questions has relevance for you and for me. If you identify with a, as a Christian, the parallel query in our lives is, how do I open myself up to fresh encounters with Jesus Christ? But if Christian's not a name that you feel comfortable putting on yourself, and you're here today more out of interest about uh, life's big questions about Jesus and his church, a question for you might be, how do I discern true and living connections between my current convictions and the very different ways of thinking that arise from Jesus and his church? I'm convinced that the answer to the question about the Magi is the answer to our question. And my, my speculation is that it's the dissatisfaction of the Magi that ready them for this uh, journey and for their transformation, for this fruitful encounter with Jesus Christ. So what do I mean by dissatisfaction? It's kind of a funny point to be making on a Sunday morning. I want you to leave here dissatisfied, <laughs> but I do. Um, our first reading from Jeremiah provides a clue. Look back at that with me. Um, this poem envisions a new era, typified by an existence which is radiant with the embrace of our individual and our social being. This is a world of life, and it's a world for life. Here is a fruitful, full unfolding with the organic energy and vigorous languor of a watered garden. Or it's a vivacious wedding celebration, a twirl with dancing and merrymaking, you know, the young women's dancing in the middle and the men and joy on the side, even the old men are happy. It's a satiating goodness that's on display here. And I feel like the prophets of Israel bring us these portraits um, to correct our vision and to correct our way of knowing in at least two ways. First, because this future vision of life is promised by God, this can seed in us an indomitable hope. But they also want to transform our vision of the present, I think. They want us to have a sacred dissatisfaction when we look out at the world around us. I think they're trying to seed in us a gut-level distaste when we compare on the one hand what we see in this vision, which is a sacred, beautiful, fully holy and true vision of life, and then we turn and we look at the banal and baneful spirit of our own times in our own hearts. They want us to say along with them, the world's current arrangements, the current arrangements of my heart, the ways and means that I follow, the ends that we pursue, they're not good enough. I'm looking for something altogether different. I'm looking for something new for all of humanity and all of creation. The prophets are teaching us how to see with a holy dissatisfaction. And as I ponder the Magi, it seems like they had something like this dissatisfaction, this larger vision of the prophets. They simply did not settle for the status quo of their lives and times. They opened up their hearts and minds to seeing the existential and social cracks and stains and degradations, all the dead ends and ladders to nowhere in their own culture. They didn't shy away from looking, or they didn't shy away from looking for something better and new. This longing seems to me to be something uh, like a cultivated openness to looking beyond the received wisdom of their own culture, those familiar ways of knowing and ways of being. 
Though they were rich and in power, they didn't seek their satisfaction in such comforts. And with this keen dissatisfaction, they moved beyond their own culture's wisdom and grasped onto the Jewish teaching of a promised anointed one. Now here, let me back up some of this speculation. Why do I think this about the Magi? First, it's very interesting that the Magi come to Jerusalem with a basic scriptural question. <laughs> they have some familiarity with the Jewish scriptures. Not a lot, they're asking questions, but they know that there's a coming king and they're excited about the coming king. So much so that they traveled the 40 days to get there. And we see this in verse two. They, they had the idea in their head right away. And where did they get it? And while the text doesn't say, we do know from the exilic literature in the Bible, your Esther's, your Daniel's, your Ezra, your Nehemiah, that there were exilic communities of faithful Jews all over these cities of ancient Babylon and Persia. And not everybody came back. So the Magi must have had this openness to being in dialogue with the Jews in their own culture and listening enough to their scriptures to say the vision that they're casting of an anointed king coming to renew the face of the earth and rule over all creation for a benevolent flourishing, that must have stuck with them. They didn't sit on their own haunches in their own culture and take their learning and their insights and just look inward but they opened themselves up and said, this isn't good enough. What do the Jews have to offer? They saw the, the story of the king and they latched onto it. And they didn't only hear it, but they must have let their moral imaginations ponder and turn this idea over in their head. They must have embraced the goodness and even the possibly superior nature of this hope that the Jews had because they were on the lookout for something from God. They were looking for a decisive shift in history. Because of that dissatisfaction that they had, this cultivated openness, when they received that sign in the heavens, whatever it was, you know, a mixing of the two planets, making the really big star, it's not, unlike, or it's not uncommon in that time to think that a star would signal the birth of a great king. But when they saw that, they packed up and they headed out. And they left all their comforts and their security and their own culture just to meet this anointed king. And no one satisfied with their current ways of living makes the trip that the Magi made. So I think it was dissatisfaction. But if it was a dissatisfaction leading to this, all they can muster in response to the news that the Magi bring is a scoff and a harumph. They can't even be bothered to travel the six little miles to Bethlehem to see what all the fuss is about, just to make sure. Imagine that. A whole religion waiting for the coming king and the religious authorities sit on their haunches. They're inert and banal. But let me speak personally. You know, I was baptized 15 years ago this month. Um, Sunday worship's the highlight of my week. I treasure my daily prayer and my Bible study. And I'm a religious insider, just like these guys, in a sense. And seeing the religious insider so close to any new revelation about God, so close to Jesus, gives me the shivers. And I think there are tales of warning to any of us who have long been in the church. Watch out. But Herod's a different story. He strangely seems more open to the reality of Jesus. He hears the Magi and he believes 
and he shudders. <laughs> he's painful and he's active. He sees that a new king would mean the end of his own reign, and he, um, he wants to wipe this kid out. He can't even call him the king. He has to call him the child. Go find this child for me. He's so satisfied with his achievement, with his power, with his bloodstained life that nothing, not even the murder of a child, is out of bounds for him. His certainty in his own way of life is so complete, his satisfaction so complete, that any newness for him is impossible. So there are two dead-end responses in this story. The satisfaction of religiosity represented by the religious leaders and the satisfaction of immorality represented by Herod. Oh, it's only the dissatisfaction of the Magi their willingness to be knocked off course by Jesus. Only that results in an encounter with Jesus that transforms their life. You know, the, the Magi's readiness reminds me of the Robin Williams character in Goodwill Hunting. Have you guys seen that? It's really old. Matt Damon looks like a little baby in that movie now when you watch it. Um, but he's telling Matt Damon's character, like, how do you know when a lady is the one? And he talks about going to game six in 1976 for the Boston Red Sox. And him and his buddy stayed up all night. They got tickets. They're ready to go to the game. They're sitting down in a bar for a beer. And in walks this woman. And Robin Williams' character sees her. And he slides his tickets across to his buddies and says, you know what? I got to see about this girl. And that's how he met his wife. And they got married. Robin Williams pounced on the opportunity to pursue this relationship to help change the rest of his life. And that's what the Magi did. They were ready. And for us, I want to say that this is the kind of readiness which a good dissatisfaction can bring in our life. Are you ready when God gives you a little nudge, a little sign, a word, when the Spirit whispers something in your heart that 15 seconds later you're going to forget? Are you ready to receive it? to pounce on it, to let it change your life? Or are we so satisfied with the status quo that that just drifts away? But how do we cultivate this kind of good dissatisfaction and openness? How do we both see the lacking in our current culture's answers, maybe our answers to life, but at the same time, in cultivating dissatisfaction, avoid that turn to nihilism and despair and cynicism, which is also so ripe in our own culture and often accompanies dissatisfaction. How do you do that? And I'd like to suggest that dialogue is the way forward. And the Magi again here present a useful method, and this is our second point, the dialogue of the Magi. And the Magi engage in two dialogues in our story. One's kind of offstage, and the other occurs when they arrive in Jerusalem. And each of these answers some of these questions on dissatisfaction. How do you cultivate it? How do you avoid despair? The offstage dialogue cultivates that good dissatisfaction. We've already seen this. This is their openness to dialogue with the Jews about um, the Jewish beliefs about the way that the world works. We don't have any details given, like I said, but we can see that they listened intensely to the Jewish faith and how it looked at the world. They knew how the Jews conceived of a God who was in control of history because the coming king would change history. They knew that this God was in control of the universe because they believed that he could send them a message through the stars. They believed the story of the coming king. They expected that um, God would be ready to, <laughs> to interact with them. 
And they also brought something of themselves. They brought their own knowledge of the stars into dialogue with the Jews because they didn't just learn from the Jews, but they brought their own knowledge of the stars to receive that sign from God when he gave it to them. So that's kind of the offstage dialogue. And what might that look like in our lives? What might it look like for us to engage in this kind of dialogue that opens our hearts up to the way that God's working? I think there's two kind of basic ways. One is art. I think artists, a lot of people will say that the artists see things first. The artists kind of feel and emote their way through culture and painters and magicians, I'm not magicians, but musicians, <laughs> singers, um, magi, um, filmmakers, they kind of see and tell us things that we're not seeing. And if we attend to them, I think entering into a dialogue with art can really open us up to seeing our world anew and cultivating this kind of good dissatisfaction in our lives. We want to see the world truly, and sometimes art can help us do that. Um, there's a little note there. You know, I think um, there's a world of difference between, I think, art and entertainment, and our culture really majors on entertainment. A lot of times it's called amusement, uh, with that ah prefix negating the word muse. The old Greeks thought that there were the muses that gave us inspiration. Maybe a more Christian idea would be that the Holy Spirit through common grace can help people see the truth. Um, but amusement just negates that. It's not about the truth. It's not about seeking beauty and what's good. It's just about being entertained, about being numbed. So when I say I want you to interact with art, and I think that would lead to a godly, a good dissatisfaction, it's not just to turn on Netflix and whatever's on, but to pursue true art people who are sincerely seeking after something that's beautiful and right and good and true, even if they're not Christian. That's one way to cultivate a dialogue um, or a good dissatisfaction. I think other cultures can do the same thing. If you sit in another culture, you can see things about your own culture that are empty and not so good. It took me 15 years sitting with uh, the Asian American community to get even the beginning of a start of understanding of what's bad about individualism in my own upbringing. And I think interactions with other cultures can help us cultivate that good dissatisfaction with the way things are. To say, I know this culture doesn't have everything right. I know my culture doesn't have everything right now because I've been interacting. But let's look up to the Christ who can tell us how all culture will be redeemed um, in different ways. But there's another dialogue which occurs on stage, and I want to discuss this briefly before closing. When the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, they bear witness to the revelation that they have, namely that the king of the Jews is born. But it's only through interaction with the revelation of the Jewish scriptures that they find Jesus. And everybody notices this about the passage. Only the scriptures can get them from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. And this dialogue with the scriptures is a vital source for us in our lives. It's crucial to avoiding that nihilism and despair and cynicism which can so often come with dissatisfaction and openness. Now, I just want to talk about two aspects of this dialogue with Scripture that I think we can cultivate in our lives to create a good dissatisfaction. First, the Scriptures provide that, that grand narrative from creation to consummation that tethers us to the hope in God. Um, there's never going to be a point, if we're in the scriptures, that we're going to drift into the meaninglessness of nihilism or despair 
because we know that there's meaning and goodness and purpose in the lives that we lead, because God's promised to see history through to its consummation in the second coming of Christ. And this is what it says in Ephesians in our passage today, that God promises that all things will be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That keeps us from cynicism. But the scriptures don't only provide that big backdrop, this kind of ground that we stand on. The scriptures also can speak into smaller areas of our lives. The scriptures can take the dissatisfactions that you have with all sorts of aspects of your own life and bring new and hopeful truth out of that. In my own life, it's been a lot of studying on work. I can take all my concerns, all my distaste, all my anxieties about work, bring them to the scriptures, enter into dialogue, and there come up with a good dissatisfaction with work. Not disgust, not despair, not cynicism, not nihilism about work, not a stomachache on Sunday night before I go into the office, but a good dissatisfaction that frames what I see is wrong with work in light of the hope of the gospel. So when I say dissatisfaction, I think this dialogue with the scriptures makes for hope. And when we dialogue with the scriptures, we see that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like the Magi, you can bring your deepest longings, your hopes and your struggles, our enduring dissatisfaction with life as it is, and we can find guidance, hope, and solace in the scriptures. And ultimately, in the scriptures, when we dialogue with them, they lead us to see Jesus more clearly. And this is our final point. The end of the Magi's journey, the end of their good dissatisfaction, the end of their dialogue with the Jewish culture and with the scriptures was an encounter with the divine. Matthew writes, and it's pretty fun to read, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Their dissatisfaction first opened them to receive a new hope of something better, some richer truth. Then it opened them to the revelation of God and the stars that there was a birth of a new king. And finally, it drove them on this long journey to worship. And they received that weight of glory into their being as they bowed before their king. Imagine to hear the story of the birth of Jesus when they talked with Mary and Joseph there in their house. And they began to realize that it's not only a king, but strangely enough, it's God come down. To know that the God that they trusted for their long journey had himself made a long journey to find them. And that's our story, friends. My hope for us is that we would grow dissatisfied with all that is empty, all that is shallow, all that is untrue in our own culture, in our own hearts, in our own families, that we'd see all the dead ends and the ladders to nowhere, and that we would be open then to dialogue in relationship with Jesus, and that we may find all along that it was Jesus that journeyed to find us. He was dissatisfied being separated from us by sin, and he came on a long journey so that he could find you and be in relationship with you. And when we see that Jesus came on that long journey, it can strengthen us for the journey that we need to take into dissatisfaction and back to him. This is the story of Christmas. 
It's the story of the light coming into the world and how we can receive the light. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus to come for us. We thank you that Jesus was not satisfied. You were not satisfied that we would be forever apart from you. And so seeking us for eternal relationship, seeking to cleanse us and renew us, you came. And we praise you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen.